Welcome to Code Chefs, the podcast for hungry web developers. I'm your co-host, Vincent, and with me is... Herman Gamboa. Hi, guys. So for today's topic, we'll be talking about JavaScript features to use in 2021. We'll go over kind of a brief history of JavaScript, how it was originally created, as well as um, how it originally went about releasing new versions and kind of the great change back in 2015 with ES6 and where it is today. And then we'll kind of do a dive afterward about what JavaScript is and what it is not. We'll also talk about how new features are added to JavaScript as a whole and which committees are a part of actually getting those proposals through. We'll talk also about JavaScript features that are newer in 2020, as well as some older ones, older older features that you can be using today in your code bases. So German, do you want to kick it off? Definitely. I'm going to go ahead and give you guys a quick overview of like the history of JavaScript, right? It's not going to be super detailed. There's a lot more to the story, and there's obviously a lot more internal, in, like interesting drama. If you want to actually dive into the history of JavaScript, there's there were some cool like dramas between companies, and it gets pretty interesting. But anyways, JavaScript was actually created like in 1995. It was due to because we wanted to add a little bit more functionality to browsers. The language itself was created in 10 days, which you oftentimes hear it referenced to as why it is so bad. It's like, yeah, 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 it was created in 10 days. So that 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 can that part has become a joke, right? The actual original name name for JavaScript was, I think it was originally named Mocha, then it became something as LifeScript, and then it became called JavaScript. So why did it become JavaScript? Well, basically, what else came out? Like what else was around that was popular in 1995? Java. So in a way to kind of like capitalize on the naming schemes, they went ahead and decided to call it JavaScript just to kind of like write its coattail, right? And that's why to this day, I don't know if you guys get hit up by recruiters, you still will sometimes have recruiters like asking you to come do Java for them and you're a JavaScript developer. There's no relation between any of them, right? So Originally, JavaScript came out. It was very, very simple. Back then, everything was very bare bones. It couldn't do much. Ajax, so asynchronous JavaScript requests, were not a thing back then. So its functionality was limited, but it still add, it still allowed us to add dynamic stuff to the web for the people that were around back then. I was rather like young back then. I was like five. We went ahead and started releasing new features, like new school things started coming out, coupled versions of JavaScript, or as it's otherwise known, ECMAScript, which we'll get that into that in a second, kept rolling out. Then a cool new thing came out around like, I was going to say it was 2005. It was called Ajax, so asynchronous JavaScript. That's basically what allows, allowed the web to become even more dynamic. So that's when things like Google Maps became a thing. And now you could actually go ahead and get new data on the web page without having to refresh the whole thing. So that's kind of when like the modern web, I want to say, I don't know if, we'd call it, if it's right to call it the modern web came to be. So what ended up happening at some point is you had all these companies and everyone trying to work on what JavaScript was, right? Because each browser had some implementation of it. Microsoft obviously wanted to be special and even had its own thing. I think it was called JS script. It wasn't JavaScript, it was just called JS script, I think, if I remember correctly. And everyone had like its own special variation of it, right? And at some point there was this great stagnation between JavaScript versions to where the language was not updated for a while. So nothing happened for a very long time. And that's obviously when like the newer li- some libraries came in to fill in the gaps. That's when you had things like Mood Tools or jQuery, which came in to kind of fill in the gap of that, like, hey, there's no new things coming out in the language. There's no new things being implemented. So that had that that was the state of things for like a good, I want to say a, a whole decade. And then something really cool happened around 2015. And that's when ES6 came out. That's when everyone kind of decided to like stop arguing with each other and went ahead and got together and came up with a new version of JavaScript. And that whole ES, ES, they say ES5, I meant ES6. That's what it was called. ES6 came out. That's when like a bunch of new things came out into the language, right? Like you had like the birth of arrow functions, you had classes, like proper, like the proper class syntax, which just syntactic sugar. You had like a bunch of new things come out with that release. And after that, how it happens today is once a year or like multiple times a year, a committee gets together and actually decides on how new things are added to the language. And that committee is called the TC39 committee, which basically stands for Technical Committee 39. So very easy naming scheme right there. So let's actually go ahead and talk about what JavaScript, what it is and what it isn't, because there's a bit of misconception when you hear like, hey, nothing really happened for a few years within JavaScript. So what was going on? So basically... 
a lot of times when you're thinking about the language JavaScript, JavaScript is actually a very bare bones programming language. There's not a lot to it, right? There's a couple of things that it has ways to handle arrays, ways to handle, let's see, ways to handle arrays, ways to handle strings, ways to do classes and things like that. But when you actually think about it, is is something like making a fetch request or a synchronous request. Is that part of JavaScript? No, it isn't. It's actually part of a browser API. So there's one thing to difference. There's one thing that to to like kind of note the difference. So most browser APIs are actually written by or like kind of work together with the W3 organization, which I forgot what it stands for, Vincent. What does the W3 thing stand for? It's W3 Consortium, I believe. They're the ones that... Yeah, oh, the World Wide Web World Consortium? World Wide Consortium. W3 stands for WWW, because so it's three Ws. <laughs> and then C stands for oh, Consortium. Nice. <laughs> I didn't realize that either. Yeah, mo- most <laughs> things are, are named very self-referentially. So yeah, that's, that, that's what's one thing important to notice, because once we actually start diving into a second, like how, how JavaScript gets new features added, you'll know, you're notice it's completely separate from the actual, like, way new browser features are added, right? And then what ends up happening sometimes the browser features don't really match up in every single browser. So you end up with things that sometimes work, but not everywhere, which has gotten a lot better even since when I started doing web development. So cool. So kind of kind of how are new features added to the JavaScript language? So again, we kind of talked about how we have that new committee that gets together and works in a spec. So the actual like spec implementation of JavaScript is called ECMAScript. And that's basically what there's like a standard that each browser implements. Ideally, they all follow the same spec and they don't deviate from it. That's not guaranteed to always be 100% the case, but it usually is. So what happens with that spec? So basically, each year they'll get together, the committee gets together throughout the year and they kind of work on different things that they want to add. So what happens with it is there's a couple, whenever someone proposes a new language feature, like that's actually specific to the language, it goes through a couple different stages, right? So the first stage is what's called a strawman, which is basically like someone just brain dumping this idea that they had for the language into a RFC, which is a request for comments. And you can actually go into GitHub and actually go and read this and you kind of kind of like see the historical data in there, which is pretty cool. Everything's open to the public. There's nothing hidden, right? Uh, so you have a, the first stage, which is stage zero. It's called a strawman. The second stage is a proposal. So it's a little bit more formal. There has to be a champion, someone who's recognized within the, com- the committee itself to kind of like adopt that, adopt that proposal, adopt that language proposal, that language feature proposal and kind of champion it around uh, and kind of start presenting like, hey, here's how the API would look for lo- would look like for this feature. How, here's the use cases. Here's how you would interact with it. Then what would happen is it gets taken to a next stage, which is called a draft. At this point, it's Almost certain that the language will go. The feature would actually get implemented into the language, but now it must be a little have a little bit more formal specification, right? It gets more tech. It gets more technical. Uh, the description of how everything should work should be as complete as it can. Should be almost almost set in stone, but not really. And at this point, it's usually where you can start trying it out, right? There's implementations of it via like something like Babel, which would polyfills, which are basically polyfills are just are like the feature implemented in raw JavaScript. So they might not be as performant as they will be once they actually get implemented in the future because browsers would normally implement their JavaScript engines in something that's like C++ or Rust, which make them really performant. So, And there's optimizations they can do, but when you implement it in plain JavaScript, it won't be super fast, but you can still get the feature. So just complete side note. So that's one of, that's when you can actually start interacting with it. So the next thing that happens is it goes to stage three, which is a candidate. So at this point, it's almost done. Uh, so the this technical specification must be complete. A lot of people must sign up on it. There must not be any changes going forward from this point, only critical things that are get identified. And then the final stage is stage four. It's finished and it's ready to be included into the standard. There's testing. There's like, like a couple of browsers should have implemented this right now. So at this point, it's ready. It doesn't mean like it's been accepted into, adopted into all the browsers. That's browser adoption is a completely different story when it comes to these things. It's already done. And by this point, most of the time, people have already kind of like started using the feature either via like trans, like transpilers like Babel or maybe TypeScript already kind of picked it up and incorporated its own version and you're kind of using it such as uh, decorators, which TypeScript decorators kind of like 
kind of deviated from the other implementation of decorators, but that's a completely different story. So yeah, that's how things get added into the get added into language. And again, this is all public, so you just can go in. You can go in GitHub and kind of like see what's going on in there. See some comments. There's some features that have been added for like the most ridiculous reasons. You know how you can actually do like at the end of a function or at the end of like a at the end of an object, you can leave a dangling comma, right, Vincent? Have you seen that that thing before? You can add a dangling comma to, to like an yeah that. So you yeah, have like, your properties, your key values in the object, and it's like the very last one. It's like adding yeah, it has there. Yeah, the whole reason for that is so if it's in separate lines, if someone makes an addition to that object or that function call, it does it only the the git diff is only created for one line. That's really the whole reason why that was oh, implemented. Interesting. I never thought about that. Yeah, and if you look at the spec at the spec in the proposal, you'll see everything is there. So it's it is really funny. I, I think we'll, we'll make definitely make sure to include a uh, link to the GitHub for that because it is awesome to read some of the stuff and some of the comments that go on. But anyways, I think we should get into like the cool part of this whole podcast episode is the actual cool new features and how you might use them. Uh, Vincent, do you want to introduce us to the first one on the list? So the first one on the list is private fields and classes. So I actually have not actually used private fields and classes before. I mean, I have used private uh, private methods and in like a back-end programming language, back-end programming language like C-sharp. But it, I mostly just do JavaScript on the front end, so I haven't actually done this before. What about you, German? Have you used private fields and classes before? Yes, when doing TypeScript. I have actually not used the default implementation of it in JavaScript, which is like the whole, like, you have the class, and you have like a pound sign, and then the property name. I've only used the TypeScript version of it. But this helps out a lot, especially when you have like those internal variables in your class that you don't really don't want people modifying. So the previous, like, it wasn't, we didn't really have a specific syntax where we had like a convention to where if you didn't want anyone messing with your variable in raw JavaScript, you would do it an underscore. That to signify that, hey, don't touch this. This is a private variable for this uh, class. And obviously since JavaScript, with JavaScript, a lot of people, sometimes people will grab your library and kind of like build hacks around it. This makes it so people cannot actually just kind of build like hacks against your like hack implementations of your stuff. Didn't we originally use immediately invoked functions to make functions private or the contents within a function private? So it gets it gets invoked at runtime. Right. Ooh, are you are you talking about uh, modules, revealing modules, which is basically a function, and then using like uh, what's it called? Gosh, what's the thing when you have the the outer state inside the you, you can closure, closure, yes, closure, <laughs> yes. Basically, you, like you used to use the pattern was called like revealing module, and you kind of use a closure, and you can only expose stuff. Are you is that what you're talking about? Something like that. It's just when you look at different libraries and their implementation. Sometimes when you read the code, the first three lines is just three parentheses and then it's like a inline callback and then it has just another parentheses closing out the entire code. And then, yeah, usually you would use an if- iffy to kind of like expose, expose some stuff if I remember correctly. Yeah, I used to right. do that a lot of my code. I just kind of stopped once you once you actually start writing like serious app, like once I actually started like writing like apps and start using like build tools and stuff like that, I kind of stopped using it. That's true. That makes a lot of sense. So with the uh, Private fields and classes. You said you sh- you don't want users modifying your your variables, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Are we talking about like when you're you're modifying the code locally on your machine before it gets compiled? Like you're importing a library, you're importing an SDK or whatever. You don't want people to run abstraction or do like hacky fixes around your library. Is that what you're talking about? Or you're talking about when it's actually both. So this is addressing like just normal JavaScript, which is not like you don't have like type safety. Uh, obviously, TypeScript would scream at you if you try to access something private. So in this case, it's like, hey, it would actually blow up in the browser when you try to like access something that doesn't belong to you. And yeah, it is to prevent. It's not the proper name is not like a hacky fix. It's called monkey patching, which uh, I don't know if you ever use. What's it called? Grease monkey. Oh, greasy monkey. Yeah, uh, tamper yes. monkey. Tamper I monkey used, to. Uh, that's actually how I first started learning to use JavaScript. I would just use tamper monkey to inject my own scripts. Yeah, a lot of times you kind of you kind of want to access those private variables to kind of like add your own functionality. This kind of helps prevent that. Oh, uh, okay. This this makes so much more sense. Yeah, I I would just like figure out like how they, how their APIs work, and I would just make my own API calls or make make my own API calls based off their spec, 
and just put in my own payloads and my own UI widgets on top of there, which on, on top of the entire application, just to make add the features that I wanted on that app <laughs> that were never like worked on or you know you you do the feature request as a user or like as an early user doctor, but sometimes like you know priorities shift and they don't have time or bandwidth to build it out, so you just I just made it myself. That was a fun time. <laughs> the last one I wrote was actually one for Plural Site. So I don't know if you ever use Pluralsight, but they don't allow their the video speed to go past 2x, which I find really annoying because I like weird. to like kind of watch them fast. So I wrote one. The weirdest thing about theirs is they actually store the speed variable for the videos in local storage. So you actually have to refresh the page for your like your hack to be able to work. That's interesting. Because normally browsers can go up to 16 times speed. Although I believe, if I'm not mistaken, audio gets cut off at eight times speed. The only reason I know this is because I was just doing a lot of experiments and seeing how fast I can make things go on the page on YouTube. <laughs> it's like, can I watch two videos at the same time to like learn all this stuff quicker? And I was just going through this whole phase of like, how fast can I learn these new topics so I can get it my first job? <laughs> oh, I, <laughs> so that's I, what I, was doing. <laughs> I used to do the same thing, man. Like I used to like when I was like in doing the boot camp and learning all that stuff. I used to watch videos like at four times speed. It's like, how can I learn? This much stuff so fast. <laughs> How can I cram all this stuff right away and start applying it right away so I can actually build something worthwhile and get a job? Yeah, so yeah. That's, that's what happened to know that 16 times speed is um, the max speed that, that that's that's a lot of be it. I think the HTML5 spec. But yeah, I've got, I've got like a video controller app on my Chrome extensions that just modifies the video speed. And you can't actually, so you're saying you can't go on Plural Set and actually increase the speed using that application. You have to actually just write your own script. That does yeah. it for you. Yeah. You have, you have to look it up. There's one, there's a version that on GitHub. Because I don't think they use like the default video implementation of things. Interesting. I didn't know that. I, I've had to work on like, like on my, on the previous project I worked on, I had to work on video transcript files. That was fun. Where you like, you have different texts appearing on different parts of the videos at different times. Yeah. Also like different languages too. But yeah. Do you want to go over through the next one? Um, yes. Dynamic imports. We're getting a little bit distracted. There's usually some stories associated <laughs> with these features. <laughs> Anyways, yeah, dynamic imports is probably something you're not going to be reaching in f- that often for, like, you're not going to be reaching for that often on your own, but it's basically a way to do code splitting or only load a module when you actually need to load it. So if you want to go ahead and save, like, having to, like, load up, like, a whole, let's say, you have, like, a script for, like, um, let's say, importing a CSV file or whatever and it has to do the transformations in the front end, maybe you don't want to load that unless someone tries to submit a CSV file. I personally have not used that one in the front end. I've used it in the back end with Node to kind of like just load, conditionally load some modules. That's interesting. I wonder if dynamic imports will be used in, for instance, like applications or frameworks that, that handle code splitting for you. Like behind the scenes, they might use dynamic imports for handling that code splitting. So if you're using maybe React or Angular, if you might be using that feature, but I mean, they're not, it's a newer feature. So it's something that's probably already implemented in differently. Yeah. So uh, by the way, we're just talking about like some newer features. We'll kind of backtrack in a second and talk about the whole big, massive change that happened with ES6, because there's also a lot of those cool ones that not a lot of people know. The next one's like one that's personal and dear to my heart is uh, Newlish Coalescing. Do you know what that one is, Vincent? Yeah, it's the double question mark. That's actually a very, very useful piece of syntax to use. So it's like it's like where if you're trying to set a variable or, or set set something, set a variable or set a value to a variable, right? And you're getting another variable that's coming in, or you're getting like a a, a fetch to, to API service. And let's say for a reason that service fails, you can do like the double question mark and say, hey, if you know if this value is not returned, just set it to this other value. And um, no, or sorry, no coalescing is usually used as a replacement for the double or operator. Correct me if I'm wrong, but nullish coalescing is more explicit, though, to my knowledge. Yeah, because sometimes sometimes you do want to allow... So it's the difference between nullish values and falsy values. For example, like an empty string is a falsy value in JavaScript, but but it's not nullish, right? Because you, you might want to allow, hey, is this string empty? Okay, okay cool. We still want to go forward and use this. But in, in this case, it's like, hey, I just don't want to go out and grab this value if it's null. 
it's a little bit more explicit in that sense. Oh, uh, right, because because the logical or operator also includes zero and empty string, but the null list coalescing operator only includes null and undefined. So it's a little bit more explicit in terms of whether a variable is unset or not. Yeah. And this one, it gets used all over the place, especially when checking variables, so you don't blow them up. That actually reminds me, now that like I've seen a lot of different code bases, I know that like, different companies implement different patterns in different ways, but in previous companies, I'd work on projects where we'd have something called a sentinel value, where it's like, we've got some random value that is just assigned in our back end or front end, and it's like, that is being used as a check across the entire code base. And it gets really hard and very sloppy because you don't know what that value is per se, unless you like look through the code base and try to figure out what it is. Nowadays, when I'm setting variables or setting the initial state to a variable, uh, at least on the front end of an application, I'm usually setting it as undefined. And I'm doing checks against undefined as opposed to like checking against like an empty string or the number zero, et cetera. That's just something I've been recently implementing. And it's been a really good pattern, at least for like managing technical depth. But yeah, nullish coalescing kind of falls in line with that kind of same philosophy, I think. Sweet. What did you say that pattern was called? It's the first time you hear about something like that. You said send on receive or send, something send, like that? Send no value. So you know like how you can have like, for instance, an enumerable. And that enumerable is like a variable that could just be like different types of string values. I see this a lot in many different code bases where it's like, you're just looking through the application and, and, and then there's like a line of code that says like, if user type is equal to this exact string and this string is just like randomly generated or someone just decides to make up a variable specifically for that, like it's not coming from the database, it's not coming from anyone else, it's just something that was set on the front end and then checked on the front end. And imagine like having like a hundred of those because every developer just has a different preference of how it should be set. It gets very messy. And it's very hard to see where things are checked and how they're being set by. So um, in this case, it's generally almost always better to have either uh, an undefined value or a bold, if you can. But then if not that, have like an enumerable with like an interface that defines your enumerable types. So Interesting. Yeah. Never heard about that one. Anyways, the next one, which is the best one in my opinion, is optional chaining. Have you used that one before? I've used this so many times. Actually, I think optional chaining was something that wasn't supported in React 16.4, I believe. It was like one of the one of the mid versions of React 16. And I remember when I was working on that project like a year ago, like in like 2019, I'm like, hey, we should probably upgrade our React application so we can use optional chaining because we've got all these like weird checks in the code base where it's like if object and an object dot object and an object dot object dot object then do this and it's like it was like the ugliest looking code ever because you just had to like write all these checks first to make sure the object exists before the object of an object exists <laughs> at that point why don't we just have one line that just compresses all of it and we just say like option you know uh, question mark dot option object a question mark dot object b and if, if the first one fails, it just gives you undefined. And that just saves you a massive load of headache. And that kind of goes back to like, like setting your variables that are unset to be undefined. I think it's a really good practice. Yeah, for us, it's like one thing that, that prevents you from like your, your application, especially if it's a single page application from just like the white screen of death, you know, when you blow up a variable, oh God, okay. like you try to access it, just, it just goes white. And like, obviously it's a horrible user experience if we're just using the application and all of a sudden something happens and the application is just gone. I mean, you know, if you refresh, it comes back, but to them, to the user, it's just like, okay. <laughs> oh, my content is gone. It's deleted. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's happened. I've had so many bug fixes throughout the years relating to just this page. When like this page just died, it's, it's embarrassing to be honest. It's like, I know. at least in reactor, I think most frameworks include something like an error boundary to prevent everything from just dying. I actually haven't experienced the white screen of death in a while. There's usually like an actual error page that just pops up and then that error is what shows up instead of the white screen of death. I mean, I remember like some of the older versions of React would have that issue where it just like blank and nothing appears on the page. But I've noticed like the error, the error checking error logging is significantly better than it used to be. Yeah, I mean, we've gotten better. We actually use error boundaries now. I mean, I always make sure to use them at least at the top level to say, 
I'm sorry, the service blew up uh, rather than just white screening. <laughs> but yeah, it's my favorite one. Error boundaries in React. In React, uh, it's just a component that catches errors. That's it. So you just wrap everything in a try catch block and then you just push up the error. Uh, no. So um, in React, so kind of deviating from the JavaScript conversation, but in, in React, so if something happens within the render, so within the render actual, within the render process, if it, if that blows up, then it actually kind of fails out really badly because there's no try catch you can do within the component itself. So what you end up doing is for render time errors or like when something's rendering, you have like a component at some level that will catch that error. As to how React handles that internally, not the slightest clue. It's hmm. interesting because, yeah, but I've had I've had to do well not specifically with React, but just like error handling in general. I've had it where it's like I had a try catch block and I had like an error somewhere else that would be thrown and then that would be propagate upward over to over to like the like to to the to the wrapper of how that component is actually rendered. I think I had to do this with GraphQL. It's been a while, but I did this with GraphQL so I could bubble up errors that Apollo, the Apollo client was was running across, and then that would then be propagated upward, so we can actually see those errors. But yeah, because like yeah. So it also allows you to get rid of. Um, I don't know how many people, how many of you guys are familiar with Lodash. Lodash used to be really helpful back in the day before most of its most of its like helper functions were actually implemented into the language. But there's one in there that was still used a lot, which is just called the get. So it's load underscore dot get. Uh, and that's basically it was an implementation of knowledge coalescing where you could pass it in a you could pass in a um, an object and then you would have a string with like the string would have like the same dot notation you used to access the object, and you could like dive into something super deeply nested. And uh, obviously, passing the default value as the third parameter, and that's how you would prevent yourself from having to do those if giant ugly if statements. But yeah, that, like I, I've been guilty in the past of like, hey, I actually don't want to write this ugly if statement. So what I'm gonna go do is just install this whole library just for this one specific thing. I've been guilty of that, but thankfully, since this is a new thing that exists, I haven't done that in a while. Yeah, I, don't, I haven't really imported too many libraries. I don't need to. Just because JavaScript feels much more feature rich than it used to be, like you don't really need jQuery or and even Lodash. Like there's a lot of cases where you just don't need it either. I mean, I still use Lodash every now and then for using debounce functions or using deep copies, but that's pretty much all I use Lodash for, honestly. Yeah. So, do you want to go over the next one? Promise that all settled. Yes, so this one's actually a pretty cool one. It's I know we, before before we actually started the podcast uh, today, we were actually discussing a couple of different like use cases for this one because it seems kind of weird, right? It's like a way to promise that settles, basically very similar to promise that all. So where you have like this array of promises, and then you want to have a way to kind of like kind of like know when all of them finished, right? But normal promise that all, if one of the promises fails then basically the whole thing blows up. So if you have an error handler, so if you're using an await function with that promise at all, it would actually, if one of them fails, it will trigger your try catch, right? Uh, or if you have error handling, if you don't, then it just blows up. But anyways, uh, if you assume that you have error handling in place, it'll trigger your try catch. In this case, it doesn't. So you, this is a way of passing an array of promises and then just waiting for all of them to finish. You do get back an array of the results for each individual one, but it doesn't fail if one of them does. So Use cases for this one says if let's say you're running a series of best batch jobs that are unrelated and they're all synchronous, this would be a way of doing it. So I think what I was telling you earlier about updating like a couple million records where you kind of just like are storing promises. Obviously, we're not storing a million promises. We're like doing some chunking. So like working in batches, but you're like maybe storing like 25 or 50 promises in one shot, but you don't really care if one of them fails. This would be like a use case for it. Right, if you're updating 200 million records, it's like we've got acceptable losses of <laughs> some of the data is corrupted. It sounds so terrible, <laughs> but but sure. I wonder how if uh, if error logging with promise dot all settled is as or is roughly the same as promise at all because promise at all. Whenever I've had to error log, for instance, like if you got, you have the array of promises that are that are need to be resolved, and if one of them fails, 
the errors that come out of it aren't entirely useful because it's like, hey, one of these failed. And it's like, okay, well, which one? You just have to go through and like check through each one and it's just been a pain. I wonder if All Settled has similar issues with error logging. I don't know. Uh, to be honest, I don't know, since I actually used this for the first time like a couple months ago and I kind of used it a couple times since, uh, the fact that it doesn't error out when one fails means that I'm not really giving much attention to the errors, which I probably should go back and fix in some stuff. I mean, if there is an error log, it should you should really still make like a, a call to some logging database or making it like an API call, which then hits a logging database saying, hey, here's one of the failed requests, so that way you actually have a record of when it failed, <laughs> as opposed to just like, hey, we got partially corrupt data. But at least you'll have some sort of record or some sort of trace of when it happened. Yeah, that's probably something I should go back. Looking back, it's probably something I should go back and fix on the uh, services I, I did that on. Do you want to go over some of like the ES6 features for reference? ES6 was originally like the whole like the whole thing with promises, right? So promises became a thing. You didn't have callback hell anymore, or also known as the pyramid of doom. <laughs> which I, that's when I started. I, I literally did like the whole pyramid of doom thing before when I started started doing Node because I like backend. But anyways, a couple of ES6 features for reference that came out is classes. Classes are really just syntactical sugar or prototypes. So JavaScript is not like your standard run-of-the-mill like object-oriented language where things are like I don't want. I'm trying to look for the right words. Not just objects, but they're like um, they, there's a prototype chain instead of an inheritance chain in the sense there's like a prototype chain. Mm-hmm. Gosh, it's always like this one's like the most confusing thing to explain to me. It's so hard to explain. So, so everything in JavaScript is an object, with the exception of primitives. In this case, which would be numbers, booleans, and strings. If not mistaken. In JavaScript, everything has a memory address for that object, right? And there is a base object in JavaScript that defines pretty much every other every other object, whether that's a function, which is technically an object as well, whether it's you know an array of objects or an array, those are objects. Whether it's I don't know, just many other different things, they all get inherited through that prototypical inheritance. Which really, it, it is very similar to a traditional like, class structure that you've find in like a, a static language, like I don't know, like C sharp, where it's like you have classes, and, and then those classes can also inherit properties from other classes, you know, polymorphism, et cetera. But with JavaScript, because everything is dynamic, it's a dynamic programming language, things are compiled at runtime. It's just a little bit different in that sense. I, that's the best way I can explain it. I don't know if you have a better way to explain that, but that's I, the best I way do, I can explain there it. There is a better explanation. Uh, I don't know if you ever watched the YouTube channel Fun Fun Function. The guy has a really, really good explanation that I always reference back. And sadly, I've actually never like internalized it well enough to actually explain it, which is not a good thing in my end. I will definitely include a link in the, for that video because that's actually a uh, really good explanation of what prototypical inheritance is. But anyways, moving on. So we have promises and callbacks. So promises came out in ES6. That was a new thing to not have to do the whole pyramid of doom thing where you kind of like keep nesting functions, keep nesting functions. And one thing that actually really came out from that that was really cool was better error handling, right? Because as before, before when you had that those nested callbacks, how did you handle errors? I personally never learned how to handle errors properly because I came into like the into programming the JavaScript around the time this became a thing. And I was like, no, I'm not learning that. I'll go ahead and learn this new thing, which is a lot easier. So I don't know if you ever had, ever had familiarity with handling errors within callback stacks. It's always been really, really hard to handle errors. Just just in general with, with any API calls or any promises that are being made and have to be then resolved. Just because... Um, I've seen it implemented in many different ways. For instance, like an Angular, you do have like one of the patterns, like an Angular six, when you're dealing with like uh, a bunch of API call, or a bunch of uh, a bunch of like service calls in the background. It's like make API calls uh, to go fetch data. You would actually have like you would actually make that promise, and then in the second argument there is an error state, and then you would just have like this nested 
change or just that's the callback hell essentially where it's just like hey here's this 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 clause where it's like you get this promise and then there's another promise in there if that resolves and another promise inside of there and then you look at the code and it's like eight levels deep and that was a standard for some time in angular but with promises just like dealing with promise with, with promise error handling I feel like the, the issue that I run across most is when I put everything in a try catch block and I use promise at all. Promise at all never just tells me which one to build. It's just like all of them failed and then that's it. <laughs> so that's been my experience. Yeah. I don't know about you. No. Uh, for error handling, it normally just resort to using try catch is what I think away. That's the easiest way I've found. Mm-hmm. And using it as close to the source as you can or as close as to where you actually want to handle the error. I think we could do a whole topic in error handling. It's it, 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 error handling is one of those things that, that really depend on on exactly what the application is doing, where the error is coming from. Uh, and the question is, can you even do anything about the error? That's true. Yeah, <laughs> that was a pretty deep topic. I always get confused about naming. So spread syntax. This one's the one where you're like destructing dot 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 into a function or pulling stuff out of objects in your erase. So let's say you have an an object and it's like constant object is equal to a a is set to the value of one b is set to the value of two c is set to the value of three you can say constant object b is equal to d four and then dot 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 uh object a the first object so you're spreading all the key values in that new spread so it's it's used very often in react where it's like you have states and you want to just modify once one key value pair in that state but you want to make sure everything else is also kind of packaged along with it that is not being changed and then in that case you'll do the dot 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 state where you just throw in all the other key value pairs back in the system got you that's how that's really okay so yeah i mean i always get confused between that one and the the structuring for some reason because i just think of dot dot dots anyways so, yeah, I use that one a lot to merge, to merge objects together, to merge arrays together. That one's actually a pretty interesting thing. It's like, what can you actually like spread into each other? It's basically anything that's an irritable. I think, if I remember correctly from a video I watched from, I think, uh, Firecode or Fireship uh, YouTube channel, where he kind of just goes over doing stuff like this. Like, what, He basically has a whole like episode where he's like, what can you merge together with, like, with spread syntax? And he does emojis and a bunch of random stuff. Also with spread syntax, the one one caveat that I always run into is if you're doing like constant like variable name is equal to you know open print open curly brace and then dot 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 some object curly brace end. If you want to modify that object be inherited, you always have to specify the key value updates at the very end. So it's like constant new object is equal to curly brace dot 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 old object comma new key new value comma new key new value right you always put the new key value pairs at the very end because they overwrite the Mm -hmm. original key value pairs if they have the same name for the keys if you do in the beginning they'll just get overwritten which defeats the whole purpose of doing it so this is something i've caught myself doing so many times incorrectly. And when I do it, in, when I write this in TypeScript, at least on the React side, it'll, TypeScript will actually like yell at me and say, hey, you're just going to overwrite everything you just did. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> so uh, that's that's definitely something that's worth noting. Ooh, the structuring. That's, my, that's like one of my favorite ones. Mm-hmm. Especially with Re- in React, when you have your props and you can actually just pull out oh, the values yes. that you need. That is so useful. Yes, and you can destructure. You can actually either like do the structuring like on the line itself, at line item itself, or you can destructure coming in from the um, from the function parameters that get passed, and you can actually destructure from there as well. Uh, but yeah, that's like super useful for me in React when like dealing with objects and knowing what I need to pull out. Okay. Yeah. No, that that makes sense. I do the same thing. Yeah, for, for props, when you're when you're taking the props, you're just destructuring it so that I can see what the props are, right? Uh, a lot of times, I'll you, you also do destructuring a lot when you're importing uh, different components from different parts of your files or your different parts of your, your folder. 
So if you want to like import, you know, function name from this file, that file might have multiple function exports mm -hmm. and you want to import the correct one. So you'll actually import, you know, curly brace function name, curly brace. That is, that is destructuring as well. Yeah. Ooh, I just remember one of like my favorite use of it. And this one might be kind of either cool or controversial. Not sure how it's going to be taken, but uh, so, you know, when you, you want to get like the first item in an array, Mm -hmm. uh, I don't like doing the array brackets zero, like the whole calling it with the zero in there. I think that looks ugly. So what I'll do is I'll go ahead. I'll go ahead and kind of pull the first item of the array with array destructuring. Really? Oh, okay. And then you just toss out the rest. That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, no reason other than I think it looks nicer. So, so you're saying like constant? What is it? Square bracket? Yeah. And bracket. Like like first element and then dot 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 array and you're just like okay i don't care about the array here you go it's in the garbage can yeah basically <laughs> that, that's actually interesting that's not a bad way of thinking of things yeah i just don't i just don't like how those the when you're just kind of pulling array stuff out with like the like bracket innovation looks it, it is completely a personal yeah. preference type deal you know another preference that i've had recently is having early returns and functions I, I used to think it was a sloppy convention because it's like, hey, now your your code is iterative and it could be doing lots of other things that, like along the way, like because there could be multiple return statements in this function and you don't know what's going on. But like at the end of the day, it's like I just hate reading nested if statements. So <laughs> sometimes I'll just go like, hey, if you don't have this variable, return. Sorry, we're done. <laughs> and it's it's something I've been doing a lot more lately. Just to, yeah make code more readable at the exchange of not making it as explicit. It also helps returning early also helps with writing tests as well. It can make the testing path a lot clearer. That's true. And I've had to write a lot of tests recently. Actually, I never really written tests before, before my current gig. It's really, really hard to write tests. <laughs> Same. We're really into like testing and it, for me, the hardest part about my new place uh, where I'm working at is, before I was always lazy and I, I like to write integration tests, right? Just hit the database or whatever. I don't like to mock stuff. But uh, it's the first time where I'm actually having to take the time out to like do mocks and like set up like stuff like that. I don't, and I'm actually starting to like it. I actually, I'm actually starting to always write my tests first, which is something I never used to do before. But now I, I feel weird when I don't. <laughs> it's really hard for me to test like internal functions in an application, at least on React, if I'm using React testing library. And there's not really a simple way to mock that, but uh, yeah, front-end testing is still not my strong suit. I think the only reason I'm getting better at testing is because I'm doing Node back-end mm -hmm. testing. So that's that's kind of like cake compared to testing UIs. Testing UIs is difficult, man. It is really really hard to test front-end. Every time I write a test for front-end, it's like I'm implementing a new pattern, and it's like the patterns never end on front-end testing. Uh, do you want to go over through the next one? Key property shorthand. Sure. What do you mean with this one? So, so if you have, let's say, var object is equal to a colon a, comma b colon b, because the key and the value are both the same thing, you could just say let object is equal to a comma b. Oh, okay, that one. Yeah. To be That's honest, such a my thing. But yeah. I don't do it that often, though. <laughs> no, to be honest, I, I have I have my uh, editor set up to where if it notices that it just. It just does it. It just automatically does it. <laughs> it for just, you. Yeah. So there's a lot of the, a lot of this like life like quality of life improvements things that come out. Uh, most of the time, like the default prettier config will do a lot of this stuff for you to make your code look cleaner. That's weird. I don't run prettier anymore. I just run ESLint now, just because prettier sometimes just destroys my code, and it makes it look absolutely like disgustingly ugly. If yeah, I remember that story. Up, if you have to deal with ternary <laughs> operators or anything of that sort, it, get, it can sometimes like make it harder to read. So with ESLint, it only it does the bare minimal amounts of uh of formatting necessary, which is much nicer in my mind, because having prettier just run by default as a default configuration, it could it just it just makes it hard to read. If you're if you want something that, that has a longer a oh, piece of code that has a longer length across the stream, right? Yeah. What about uh, template literals? Go to the next one. Cannot survive without template literals. Uh, so basically, 
when I first, this reminds me when I first started doing programming or JavaScript, uh, if you wanted to build up, build up like a, like a, like a string of like, of whatever, you had to concatenate the string using, um, like if you wanted to like insert variable values in between the string, you had to do the plus sign. So this is back when I was actually starting. I was like, oh, I want to write like my whole, like my own, like insert like my own HTML whenever like my, my request from the weather API returns, right? And the way you would have to do that is you would have to basically go ahead and kind of like do diff, like write out the string diff plus whatever value variable you wanted to insert plus maybe closing div or whatever. And you had to kind of build your HTML or whatever string you're building like that. It was horrible. Oh, uh, but yeah, then, I that. yeah, but then uh, template literals make it so simple, right? Cause you do the little back ticks, you write out whatever you want. And then if you need to insert a variable or whatever, you can go ahead and just do dollar sign little, what is like squiggly brackets. I don't know what the proper name are. Curly braces. Curly braces. Yes. Those. You would go ahead and just kind of you can kind of like add in the um, add in the value you need or maybe add like a conditional in there. It makes things a lot easier than just going ahead and doing um, like plus signs. Yeah, for sure. I use I use template literals all the time for applying conditional classes to different class components in React, and I sometimes use it to define key unique keys for each of my iterative components as well. So I'll say like, hey. Uh, I'm, I'm mapping through these lists of components, right? It's an array of objects. And I'll say, hey, set each key to some string plus the index. And that way, those keys assigned to those components are completely unique across the entire application. Nice. That's, those are like very, those are like the things I do all the time with template literals. But template literals are just very useful in general when you're applying a string and applying a variable within that string. So it's more dynamic. Do you want to go over three error functions? Yes, error functions are the nice version of functions. I don't know if I've ever actually typed out function, like the whole old function syntax just for the heck of it. Only when you actually need it, because you sometimes do still need it. But error functions allow, basically, it's a, it's a more concise syntax, but the real reasoning behind why they became a thing was just to um, manage the this scope, which I know lately, mm-hmm. which is a good thing about JavaScript, we kind of been moving away from using this that that much, uh, because this is kind of confusing, especially in JavaScript, because it depends. This depends on who calls this. But yeah, error functions kind of ignore this. <laughs> right, because in the case of error functions, that this is always binded to the function itself, which abstracts away a lot of headache in terms of like, hey, is this the window object or is this something else? And you can also use the bind syntax in JavaScript, which can bind it to that either that function or that window, depending on how it's set. So yeah, I remember like when I was first learning JavaScript, I'm like, what does this this refer to? It's just so confusing. I didn't understand it for the longest time. And then error functions came, or then we had error functions like, oh, I could just completely ignore the problem entirely and just do this instead. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. For me, it was really frustrating coming from like a background of like like object oriented because I, I originally learned Java and that stuff, right? So this in Java is actually pretty pretty clear what it is, right? Uh, it's not to where like if you call this within this class in Java, it's that it's the, the context of that class, right? In mm-hmm. JavaScript, if you call it, it might not it, the this might not be the context of the class you're calling. It might be the context. It's the context of the caller. So it might so it, it leads to some weird annoying behavior. I remember when I was like writing Python just for like learning like how to do a little bit of like backend development. The, this context is usually referred to like the const- the constructor or, or like you have like different definitions or different functions within your Python file, and it's referring to that function scope, right? It's always referring to that. It's not referring to like something else outside of it. And a lot of times you'll use that to. As like a uh, as like a constructor function for generating objects, and that this is always binded to that function context, which makes it much simpler to understand. But you know, JavaScript always just confuses the crap out of me whenever it came to this. And still, like every so often, I'll just go on fun fun function just to refresh myself on how this works and all of its caveats work. <laughs> If I ever get to some code where I actually have to know that this context, which doesn't really happen terribly often anymore, but if I were just writing vanilla JavaScript and maybe running some 
of my own like abstractions behind the scenes or like writing my own library, then I would have to understand it a little better. But I haven't really had to deal with it lately just because error functions make it so much more simpler. Although, Definitely. I am kind of like mixed on the opinion of like if you're making like a utility function in your application or like a pure function where it's like you have a definitive input and a definitive output, could be like a string going in and a string going out, and there's no side effects on that function. I've always like been conflicted of calling of using the arrow functions versus just calling it a function. Because if you just call something a function, it's not an error. You can't use error functions. It has to be a constant or a let or, or a var or whatever. So that's something I've just been always mixed about. Whether it's to be like explicit, call it the word function, and then you know the name of the function, parentheses, and then curly brace, or just do like constant function name error syntax, et cetera. But yeah. Yeah. Any other cool functions that you might think of? No, I can't think of anything else. Do you think it's time for dessert? Yes, there it is. Uh, there's obviously a lot more stuff that we didn't cover because it's been like, what, like four years of constant updates, which is awesome because it means the language doesn't stagnate and we kind of get we kind of get like updated features all the time. And for the most part, TypeScript implements them first at least from what I've seen. But yeah, let's go ahead and do some dessert time. Let's actually explain dessert time for our first time listeners. So dessert time is basically your own little like section of the podcast where we tell you what's going on with our lives. So Vincent, what is going on in your life? So what's been going on in life? I, since about the last episode that we aired, I had my vaccine shot. Nice. COVID. I had Moderna. And funny story is, I just got a call from my buddy. He's like, Yo, dude, you gotta come over to the stadium. There's two shots left available because I don't have to go through the process of like scheduling a COVID mm-hmm. shot because that would take at least a week or two in advance. And I'm just like, all right, I just dropped everything and just drove over there. And I, I kind of just did a little bit of research beforehand. I'd done research prior leading to that moment about kind of what its side effects are and how it works, like between the Johnson Johnson vaccine and Moderna and Pfizer. And I didn't really have any expectations going in, but when I took the shot, it was just a pin prickle on my shoulder, kind of like any vaccine. And I remember just waking up the next day, like completely out of it. Like I had a crazy headache and inflammation all over, and I couldn't even use my right shoulder or right arm. So I just pretty much called it a sick day from that point on. And I'm actually getting my second shot next week. But yeah, it's it's just interesting to like kind of reflect back on how this last year's been and the fact that, you know, vaccines are now made publicly available and that you can take it and they can go through this whole ordeal. But, but yeah, that's, that's, that's something that's been new in my life is going through that. What about you, German? Well, I haven't gotten my vaccine yet. I've actually, wanna, I'm planning on going next week to go ahead and get it. Cause I know I'm probably going to be sick. So I'm going to go ahead and schedule some time off. For sure. If almost everyone I've I've known that has taken it, either the first one or the second one makes him really sick. It's usually just one of them. It's not both. Or for the most part. It's been kind of like random for everyone. But basically, what have I been doing? Oh my gosh, lots of work lately. So back in February, I started a new role at a different company. So it's been like two months of just kind of ramping up. And it's a startup, so it's we're small, so there's a lot of things to do. So that's been basically my whole life for the past two months. <laughs> <laughs> that and I don't know. If, I don't know if you can hear the little guy. That's also been my life for the past year. I can hear him. He's just like screaming yeah. in the background. <laughs> short, long story short, right. yeah, he's one. He turned one like, uh, like what, like thirteen days ago, and he, his molars are coming in, so he's in um, extreme amount of discomfort. I can imagine. Yeah. Anything else to cover before we wrap it up? No, we will make sure we have all the links in the description for a lot of the things that we talked about, since a lot of the things are actually like, there's a lot more debt to it. And um, I, would, I would have to look up for that one episode, that one video I watched that has the whole history of JavaScript and all the drama that went behind that whole little stagnation that we talked about. But yeah, we're good. All right, man. So we'll see you guys in the next one. All right. Take care, guys. Thanks for dining with us on Code Chefs. We hope we satisfied your hunger. For show notes and more insider info on today's topic, visit our website at www.codechefs.dev. Plus, follow us on Twitter at CodeChefsDev. 
Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and join us back here for the next one. Uh, Check, please.